The Man of God Network exists to help the church in her mission to identify and equip qualified, faithful men for the gospel ministry and for the recovery of biblical reformation in our day. It's our joy to provide you with resources that both encourage you and edify you as you seek to build Christ's church where you are, to the end that He is better known, loved, and exalted. We appreciate the support of our listeners. To learn more about how you can help us accomplish our mission, visit manofgodnetwork.com. This resource combines expositional sermons and lectures from the classroom of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary to help equip listeners for the work of the ministry. You have a copy of the scriptures. I invite you to turn with me to the book of Hebrews. And we begin uh, this morning, uh, Hebrews chapter 4. And I'll read uh, simply the first two verses, and then we'll once again pray. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this time together in your word and to consider its truth. And Heavenly Father, we pray that it would come to us with its intended power and message, Lord, that we would, where needed, fear. And Father, we pray that there would be none here who would fall short of entering that rest. Aid us unto that end. Heavenly Father, give us ears to hear and hearts to listen and to obey what you reveal. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1978, uh, the BBC began a radio program created uh, by a man named Douglas Adams. And this program was a science fiction slash comedy uh, about the end of the world and then what followed. It's called The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Some of you may be familiar with it. It not only was a radio series, but a book series and, and a television show and a movie. And among the crazy scenarios that Adams set forth is a story about an invention created by a man who wanted to take vengeance on his wife. Now, the reason he wanted to take vengeance on his wife is that she was always telling him that he needed to get a sense of proportion. And so that led him to invent a device that he called the total perspective vortex. And that device would place a person into a small chamber. And in that small chamber would be a dis- be displayed a model of the entire universe. And in the center of it was a microscopic dot on top of another microscopic dot emblazoned with the words, you are here. If you think that you're big or famous 
were that you somehow matter, the idea was, the total perspective vortex would shatter your mind. And it became, in the world of the Hitchhiker's Guide, a torture device. Put someone in there, show them their place in the universe, strip them of all of their delusions of grandeur, and give to them a total perspective of who they really are, And the idea was that you would watch them go mad. Now, though meant when largely comedic purposes with its own philosophical idea, the idea was that the only way to live in that world is to alter reality and perspective to such a degree to eliminate the total perspective. You could view yourself now as the center. That's what you would do. Now, the Bible, I want to be careful how I say this, in many ways is intended as a total perspective vortex. But its perspective is not to ruin you or to mock you, but to help you in such a way as to save you. Does your life matter? Somebody asked, how do you gain meaning? What will matter in the end? What is life all about? What if I spend the entirety of my life on those things that are temporal? Well, step into the total perspective vortex. What if I read the Bible and neglect the weightier matters of the law? Well, step into the gospel narrative to gain total perspective. What if I have a faith that strains out gnats and swallows camels? What if I gain the whole world and yet lose my own soul? Now, the book of Hebrews, as the rest of the scripture, is intended to give to you this total perspective of life. Here's what matters. Here is what is eternal. Now, the passage before us this morning speaks to those who have, to some degree, grasped those things that matter most. Those who, in the words of Jesus, are at least very close to the kingdom of God. But what a sad thing it would be to be close to the kingdom and to fall short of entering that kingdom, or to be, in the words of Acts 26, one who is almost persuaded and yet ultimately lost. Now, in recent weeks in our studies in Hebrews, we have seen the author opening up and expounding and applying the truths of Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. That has been his text. That's a text that begins with the words, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Why we sang uh, two hymns about hearing the voice of God. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Now that rebellion manifested itself uh, among those of the wilderness generation. Remember when they refused to believe in God's loving provision at Massa and Meribah, and when they refused to believe in God's power and promise to enter safely into the promised land. And due to their unbelief, God swore in his wrath that that generation would not enter his rest. Now, that generation was those 20 and up, that they would not enter that rest. Now, this theme of rest permeates Hebrews chapter 
4. And we will begin to look at that subject now today. Now, that rest, which was typified as entering the promised land, that rest that they forfeited through their unbelief now becomes a metaphor for another rest, a greater rest, a spiritual rest, an eternal rest. Now, the loss of the promised land forfeited by uh, the Jews thousands of years ago in Palestine probably means little to you. I don't know how much you think about it. Oh, they didn't enter because of unbelief, but it did mean a great deal to the Jews, and it continues to mean a great deal for some of them even today. The thought of the promised land. That rest, however, again, prefigured a greater rest. The rest of a soul to be found in Jesus and an eternal rest and glory that will eventually be seen in the new earth that will come about when the Lord Jesus returns. In the Old Testament narrative, there were those who came close to entering the promised land. They were so close but they didn't get there. And for the author of Hebrews, there will be those in the first century among the Jewish professors of faith and among those in our own day who likewise will come close, but who will not enter. So this is largely a text of warning and of self-examination. I do believe there is hope and comfort and obviously the gospel here. Uh, but we need to take heed to what the Spirit is saying to us in this passage. So as we come to verses 1 and 2 this morning, I want to consider it under three headings. First of all, a promise which remains. Secondly, a fear that must be embraced. And then finally, a prophet that we must pursue. Consider, first of all, then, a promise which remains. I want to go back because verse 1 begins with the word therefore, and that causes us or should cause us to cast our eyes to the previous passage. I'm going to begin reading at verse 15. While it is said today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. And now he expounds and applies that text. For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not those who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now with whom was he angry forty years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief, therefore. The therefore is a call back to this awful judgment of God upon that wilderness generation. Hundreds of thousands who perished in the wilderness due to unbelief. But that unbelief, as we see now, for he says, therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear. A promise remains of entering his rest. And what we're reminded of is this, that as horrible as their unbelief was, it did not restrain the mercy of God to following generations. 
for there would yet remain the promise of entering his rest. In a temporal, physical sense, the children of the wilderness generation would enter according to God's promise. God did not and would not wipe out all of the people. The sins of the parents did not undo the promise to Abraham. And that same mercy is on display now is what the writer to the Hebrews is saying. That promise, that declaration of the heart of God toward rebellious and unbelieving sinners endures so that there is a promise that there is a rest which can yet be entered into by faith. Now this promise of rest again must be understood as something other than the promised land. That land, we are told, is but a picture of a greater rest. We're told that in the context here. We're told it later in the book of Hebrews. Verse 3 tells us that we who have believed have entered that rest. So he's not talking about Palestine. He's talking about a rest that we come into when we come to faith in Jesus. And it is the kind of rest that Jesus spoke of so wonderfully and beautifully in Matthew chapter 11. When I speak of entering into our Lord's rest, no doubt you think of that passage. Now that passage, he, uh, Matthew 11, much like this passage and much like Psalm 95 and much like what we have gone back to in Exodus and in the book of Numbers, is given in the context of unbelief, Matthew 11, unbelief in light of the wonders and miracles that Jesus had demonstrated. Remember, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the wonders, signs done in you had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented. Remember that? And, and in that sense, it draws a certain connection between our Lord's generation and the wilderness generation. You know, people want to say sometimes, show me a sign and I'll believe. Do a miracle. Raise the dead. Heal the blind. Do something like that. And I would believe, well, again, remember, it was the wilderness generation who saw the Red Sea split who perished because of unbelief. You can see signs and you can see wonders and be hardened in unbelief. Our Lord's generation largely forsook him, though they saw his wonders in his day. So again, someone says, show me a sign and I will believe. Well, Jesus showed them a multitude of signs. You could say to that generation, you could go to Chorazin and Bethsaida and say, why do you not believe? Do not the deaf hear? Do not the blind see? Are not the lame walking and jumping and rejoicing? Have not the dead been raised? Have you not heard of the multiplying of the loaves and the fish and the stilling of the storm and the cleansing of the lepers? Not since the days of Moses and Elijah and Elisha had such signs and wonders been done in the land. And yet, just as an entire generation saw those signs and wonders and did not believe, so in our Lord's day, they scoffed and turned away and found fault with Jesus just as they did with Moses. 
The wilderness generation saw signs and wonders and judgment and deliverance such that we would say no rational person could ever doubt and certainly no one who saw such things would perish in unbelief and yet they did. Now what does Jesus say in the midst of such unbelief? Well, you say, well, he rested in the glories of sovereign grace. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. And no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and he to whom the Father is pleased to reveal him. But then he says these words. In the midst of unbelief, what does he do? He gives a promise of rest. Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. A promise of rest remains, even where there is great unbelief. Jesus did not say, Father, send judgment now. He didn't say, destroy the world for unbelief. He didn't say, I'm going to take up my grace and go home. He said, rather, come unto me. All you who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Unbelief and yet a promise of rest. In Romans 3, in verse 3, as Paul wrestles, and part of the book of Romans is his wrestling with the unbelief of the nation of Israel. But he says in chapter 3, in verse 3, For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? The answer is, of course not. Unbelief will not and does not harden the heart of God nor prevent the spread of the gospel nor the offer of gospel rest. Now, as has been quoted in the past, and we have read from writers from the 1700s and the 1800s, and, and brethren, it was so then, and it is certainly so now, we do live in an age of abounding unbelief. And every poll that is taken is telling us that there are more and more people turning away and they're turning away from Christ and they're turning away from the church and they no longer believe the Bible to be the word of God. Ligonier Ministries just came out with a rather horrifying survey of the state of modern theology among so-called evangelicals. And if it's bad among them, then imagine what it's like in the world at large. And we look at all of this unbelief, and, and what is our common statement about such things? Surely the end must be coming. Surely the time is now coming when God is going to draw the curtain on this age and send Christ and bring judgment because of such abounding unbelief. And yet, at this time, there remains the promise of entering his rest. And isn't it wonderful that in thousands of places all over the world, preachers are telling about that one who is gentle and lowly, and who will give rest to their souls. In spite of thousands of years of rebellion and thousands of years of sin and unbelief and blasphemy, there remains on the lips of the proclaimers of the truth a promise of rest. We can do the work of an evangelist 
and tell people this good news of God and of his grace. There is a place where sinners lay down their own labors and their own works of supposed righteousness and rest in the righteousness of God in Christ. There is a promise of rest that remains. But this is given now in context coupled with a fear that we must embrace. One of the lingering lessons of the wilderness generation is that was of those who did not enter his rest because of unbelief. Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. That rest that remains is offered to all but only given to those who will embrace it by faith. To reject that call of faith in the gospel or having claimed to have laid hold of it and then rejecting it is the foundation of the warning sounded here. Again, Let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it, for indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. Now there is a lot here that we could deal with, but I want to strive in relatively short order to get to the heart of it. The writer is drawing a connection between his generation, especially to the church there, to the wilderness generation. Now, Paul does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10. And if you want to take the time later on, that would be a profitable read. I'm not going to read all of it. I will allude to it. But if you want to read 1 Corinthians 10, again, Paul does the same thing. It is not just that they rejected now we are being told, because he says here, the gospel was preached to us and it was preached to them. Now, that tells us that the wilderness generation did not simply turn a blind eye to the signs and wonders. It wasn't merely that they were overcome with fear when they saw giants in the land. It wasn't simply that they had their hearts turned to question the character of God when they were lacking water for a little while. It is not just that they rejected the signs and wonders. It's not just that they rejected the leadership of Moses, as bad and inexplicable in a sense as all of that is. But woven through the realities that were given to that generation of the holiness of God and the strictness of the law of God, and of the priesthood and the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the blood of a lamb on the doorpost and the Passover, all of that was about what? The gospel. It was about the one who would come so that their unbelief manifested itself, yes, in regard to the care of God and the provision of God and unbelief concerning the power of God, but ultimately we are reminded that it was a rejection of Christ and of the gospel. There would come another exodus from another slavery, and there would be the offer of entering a better land, a better city whose builder and maker is God. 
And there was a gospel promise given to them of another mediator, of a better covenant, of a greater prophet who must be heard. And if he would not be heard, they would be cut off from the people. And there would be prefigured in all of the types and shadows another lamb and a final sacrifice and a final priest who would do for sinners in the offering of himself what the blood of bulls and goats and what no other lamb and no other priest or prophet could or would do. This glorious hope came to them and they fell short of it. And they did not enter that rest, the eternal rest. You see, it is possible that they could have lost the earthly land of rest and still had the eternal rest. You know who did that? Moses. You see, the horror for them was not so much missing Zion. It was missing heaven because they did not believe in Christ. Moses saw the land from afar, and he was denied entrance. But do we mourn the death of Moses? No, when Moses died, he entered God's rest. And this should give us pause. In fact, it ought to produce in us fear. Let us fear. Now, brethren, I do not want my ministry to be a ministry of fear. God has not given to us a spirit of fear, but of love and peace and of a sound mind. But there are times when the word says fear and we have to preach that. When Paul gave the warning essentially in 1 Corinthians 10, and in there he is rebuking the arrogance of the Corinthians who were acting like the wilderness generation. They were partying and there was sexual immorality and there was division. And he's saying to them, Did you, have you ever read Numbers? You ever read Exodus and, 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 and Numbers? Have you ever read about them? And that these things are written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come and they have given so that we would not be puffed up and arrogant. So you don't think to yourself, well, we're better off than, th than they were because we have the gospel. So did they. No, not as clearly as you do, but they had the promise of the gospel. And what we ought to learn from them is that, that a people called out by God and delivered by God can yet fail to enter the rest because of their sin and unbelief. Don't think to yourself that we can trifle with sin, that we can be unloving toward our brethren, that we can be proud and arrogant and be saved because, well, you know, the gospel. Listen. The gospel is never given in the scriptures as an encouragement for you to continue in sin. Again, they had the gospel too. That wilderness generation had it prefigured to them in all of these types and shadows. And so Paul reminds new covenant believers in 1 Corinthians 13 with these words, let he who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And grace, though free and patient, is not to be trifled with. 
So the idea is that when we hear of some individuals or perhaps churches or denominations or seminaries deviating from the faith that they once held in common with us, our response is not to mock or simply expose and castigate. It is to fear. And to ask yourself, what led a formerly faithful people to the place where when they heard the giving of the covenant, the wilderness generation said, we will. We'll take God to be our God. We'll delight to be his people. Well, until their water gets shut off and well, until we see the giants in the promised land and then they turn back. And brethren, we ought to say to ourselves, if they saw what they saw, and fell short of the rest. And if there were gifted people and seemingly confessional people and all of the rest who now have fallen short, ask yourself, how did they get there? Was there some unconfessed sin? And you think to yourself, you know what? I haven't always been quick to confess my sins. Some hidden struggle, and you might think, oh, I've been there and done that. Was it some burning temptation? And you say, well, I, I, I've had those. Was it some unbelief, some struggle with some Bible doctrine? And maybe you've been there too. And what did I cause you to do? Well, Lord, then how am I going to enter that rest? If they were better than I in many ways and they fell short, what hope do I have? That's the question that ought to be asked. Listen to a quotation from Mr. Spurgeon, Pastor Spurgeon. And he's admitting to some of this struggle himself. I, I mentioned this some weeks ago in my own life, and Spurgeon says it, as always, better than I can. So let me tell you what he said. He said, some of us who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and of establishing in them the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very, very gospel we have preached. Do not be haughty, but fear. Fear less that we who have seemingly begun well should, be, should fall short of that rest. Beware of the power of unconfessed sin. Beware of the ruinous power of a compromised life. Beware of the little foxes, those little things allowed into the heart which can and do turn people ultimately away. If it happened to them, then to recognize it can happen to us. If it happened to the wilderness generation, and if a church planted by Paul and preached to by Peter and Barnabas and Apollos needed to take heed, then, dear ones, so do we. We are not to trifle with grace. Now consider a prophet that we must pursue. P-R-O-F-I-T, prophet. For indeed, verse 2, we read, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them. But the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. 
What a tremendous privilege some have had in hearing the gospel. You know, some in the years that we, we've had some really, really fine preachers here. We've had some preachers here that people have written books about because of, I mean, what good preachers and ministers of the gospel they are. And we'll look back someday and say, I heard, I won't give us, Andy H. Or we heard Al Martin in person or, you know, whoever the case may be, that we heard them. We got a lot of good preachers here. I, I have a friend, I have friends who sat under the ministries of Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Murray, guys that we look at and read their books. And, but I know people who sat there on the stage with them and, and, and all of the rest. My friend Austin Walker, our friend Austin Walker, once had an elderly woman attend service at Crawley who said to him, this is in the mid-70s or early 80s, she says, when I was a little girl, my dad took me to the tabernacle and I heard Charles Spurgeon. But the thought is, that's wonderful, but what does it profit if that word is not mixed with faith? It doesn't matter how powerful the preaching or the preacher. It will do nothing in your life. You, you can be the best taught people and live the most miserable life if that word is not mixed with faith. Now listen. The scriptures are powerful in and of themselves. They are not made powerful by anything you do. They are inherently powerful. The word is living and active and powerful and like a two-edged sword. But in your own life, it doesn't matter what you've heard. We've had people here have heard about purity and love and marriage and faithfulness and all of the rest, and it has not profited them one whit. It's as though they, if, if you judge the ministry of the pulpit purely by the lives of all of the people, you're going to get mixed signals. That's true of our Lord's work, of our Lord's ministry. I tell some people sometimes when they're struggling as pastors. I said, let me tell you a story about a preacher, a great preacher. After three years, he had 12 members in his church. They're like, wow. And I said, yeah. And I said, and, and one night, one of them committed suicide and all of them left the church and they were all proud and, and fighting with each other. And they're like, wow, what a terrible preacher. That's our Lord's ministry. It wasn't mixed with faith. And you can hear a Moses. You can hear Moses. And you can hear John the Baptist or Paul or Peter. Remember what Paul was said of Paul as Paul went and preached? Some heard and some scoffed and mocked. Some believed. Some said, we'll listen to him again. They heard Paul and they scoffed. Peter says there will be mockers. There were those who heard Jesus and even those who followed Jesus and even those who truly believed in Jesus who struggled to the point where our Lord would say to them, where is your faith? 
Are there not times when he would say that to us? We're so undone. Some news comes and, and, and we listen to it as though Jesus were still in the grave, as though he were not the seed of David enthroned on high, as though he, the world is totally out of control and God doesn't know what he's doing and whatever the rest. And, and the, where's your faith? When trouble comes, when temptations arise, when we fear for our reputation before some hostile person, when we're ashamed of the gospel, times when we are not trusting that God will provide a way of escape in our temptation, times when we live as though the fear of God was a non-entity in our lives. And the word comes. And sometimes that word is not as helpful or as transformative as it should be because doubt chokes it out. And we can be a sad lot. The word of comfort doesn't comfort. Tell people, brethren, there's good news of great joy for all the people and something in our heart goes, yeah, but. Yeah, easy for you to say. Easy for you to be comforted with that. Again, it's not mixed with faith. And sometimes a warning is sounded and it's ignored because it's not mixed with faith. We need to be aware that those doubts which at times strain the fabric of our faith do not become the very things that tear our faith apart and bring us to the point where we can look at Jesus as some in this church that he is writing to did. And they could look at a Jesus they once embraced and sang to and talked about and celebrated with the wine and the bread and despise him and count his blood and his cross an unclean thing. And some stand in the water of baptism, and if I do the baptism, I will ask something like, is it your determination, God, helping you that you will follow the Lord Jesus in faithful obedience all the days of your life? I will. And on the basis of that confession of faith, we baptize. But ask them now, is Jesus a pearl of great price to you? <laughs> I haven't thought about him in months. You say, well, you know, Jesus said, and it means nothing to them. Not worthy of my faith, not worthy of my following. And again, where did it begin? It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in one massive decision. It was a series of truths given or read or heard that were not mingled or mixed with faith. And yet, for all this necessary fear, let us be watchful because it could be me. And being 45 years into it, I'm 45 years in come November, 32 years of ministry, I've been preaching since 1979. 
I can't give myself a pass. I can't say, well, that's long enough to coast the rest of the way. I got news, and I'll have to share it at some point with you, of a a pastor, a friend of ours who resigned this past week because he didn't watch his heart. Now, he hasn't left the faith, but the church is hearing the news today. And when I hear it, I think, what was it? And I ask, have I? Have I trifled where he fell? And so we need to fear. It's necessary that there be a fear of God in the church, again, that glories in grace and believes in the power of God to persevere and to to cause us to persevere and to preserve us and at the same time watch our hearts with all diligence. And in the context here, as we will see as the text unfolds, that as much as it is necessary to give this fear to the church, they had the gospel, they fell. Some in your day have heard the gospel and they have trampled the Son of God underfoot. Be watchful, be fearful. Yet there remains a promise of rest. Isn't that wonderful? The door of heaven is still open. And if you fear that you have fallen or that you have compromised, the door is still open. And the heart of God still pleads. And so as we come, as it were, to that total perspective box or that box of total perspective and enter in and we behold in it not the grandeur of the universe, but the grandeur of God's grace and the wonder of the truth expressed And that most well-known of passages, that God did indeed so love this world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe on him, to mingle that truth with faith, it stands as an unalterable truth that God loved this world and gave his only begotten son. But if that truth is not mingled with faith, it does you no good. He loved this world and gave his only begotten that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn or to destroy the world but that the world through him should be saved. Take in that truth, stir in faith, and enter his rest. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, we would even now, though we would take heed, we're not, we don't want to trust in ourselves We would be foolish to do that. We want to trust in you and in your grace and help us living God to know that having come to him of truth, that you will indeed hold us. Father, do keep us by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Preaching and Teaching, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. 
CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.